Hello, you're listening to a poetry podcast from Poets in the City. And in episode four, we're taking you on a rather different journey as we go down a dark, otherworldly audio portal and enter the world of one of the 20th century's most iconic writers, Samuel Beckett. Featuring audio material taken from a Poet in the City celebration of Beckett at Milton Court Theatre in London, we'll hear commentary from Beckett experts, recordings of his poetry and fragments from his prose piece, Text for Nothing For, performed by acclaimed Beckett actress Lisa Dwan and taken during rehearsals. So, prepare to go to a place like no other. We're about to enter the strange world of Samuel Beckett. was a lot of doubt, scepticism really, almost thoroughgoing scepticism as regards language. You see, for me, the life of Samuel Beckett was everything that he had lived. That is, the books he had read, the paintings he had seen. Well, I think he's, I think he's a writer who lived his life without his skin on what he's offering us is remorseless and no false kind of comforts, you know, and I'm very grateful to him for that. We suffer every day. What is it for? Samuel Beckett is a writer who challenges not only audiences but artistic forms themselves. He's the kind of writer that elicits dedication from fans and followers, and one of those is the actress Lisa Dwan, who explains how she got hooked on Beckett. I suppose the first time I encountered Beckett was at home in Athlone when I was about 12 years of age. Um, the BBC televised A. Joe and it frightened the life out of me and yet I couldn't look away. And with such sparsity, I didn't know what it was that was chilling me to the core, but I've never forgotten it. And then, and it was Sean Phillips' extraordinary voice and the relentless persistence of it that just tore into my soul. Um, so in 2000, when I became a professional actress, I was in Dublin. And it was at the time when The Gate were committing all of Beckett's plays to film. And that was my bar and my landscape when I came to theatre. They were performing all of the plays in The Gate at the time. And, you know... I just learned the whole vocabulary of it. And I suppose Beckett does write about my landscape and it's a musical tone and a a high poeticism that I understand innately. And I'm kind of glad I didn't meet him, actually, because it does give me, it makes me work harder for a start, but also makes me find my own path into this work. And then I started working with Billy Whitelaw in 2006, after I first performed Not I in 2005, she rang me up out of the blue and she said, I want to give you his notes. I have to give you his notes. Can you come around, please? And we started working together and it was amazing. And then I have been extremely fortunate to have worked with Walter Rasmus, who was Beckett's favourite director. And I've been working on these texts now for 10 years. And uh, I love him. Can't get enough of the man. 
Jim Nelson is somebody else who's dedicated his life to Beckett's work. He was Beckett's friend for 19 years and is the author of Damn to Fame, the only authorised biography of Samuel Beckett. He explains the appeal and the pull of Beckett's work. I think that this is true, that they do elicit, I think, this quest for meaning. And I hope that there are things that keep coming to you. You know, it's amazing. I mean, after I must have worked on Beckett, I was an 18th century French scholar first, and then I turned and my life was taken over. As my wife used to say, there were always three in this marriage. And uh, I think that that kind of involvement, that he draws the reader in, but he can also, in the poetry, put the reader off by his erudition, because there is an awful lot of opaque material in the poems. Born in 1906 in Dublin and a writer of plays, prose and poetry, Beckett shot to fame in his groundbreaking play Waiting for Godot, which premiered in 1953 in Paris. Jim Nelson just talked about the quest for meaning in Beckett's work, but it's a quest that's difficult and one which people don't always want to go on because Beckett exposes the frailties and absurdities of being human. He asks the big existential questions of why we're here and what we're doing. He's unrelenting in his confrontation of life and of death and of human relationships. Lisa Dwan, another Beckett quester, lays down the territory. I can't hold this day. A friend of mine once said, Do you know, Beckett's a very cruel writer. It might be okay for him to describe the world in this way, but the rest of us need our delusions. She's right, in one sense. Beckett does get us to confront our own truths, truths that are so frightening to face that we run from them all the time. In fact, we arrange our lives in fear of them. But despite our paltry efforts, we still sometimes wake with this haunting, sneaking suspicion about our own isolation, our loneliness, the scars that won't heal, our impending death. And we're all desperately fighting to keep at bay and our hilarious efforts to do so, even when it's just a breath away. No matter how we dress our lives, our frailty and ourselves up, deep down we all know where we're headed and that we're all going there alone. It isn't easy to look down the barrel of life that way. In fact, we are designed to defy this. We have an inbuilt fight-or-flight system for this very reason. And Beckett also celebrates this. He celebrates our defiance. I remember Edna O'Brien once asking me in a question-and-answer session after my performance in Enniskillen, can you tell us in one word what this work means to you. (laughs) And I had to answer. Defiance. And Beckett's characters do defy, and they do go on. What makes Beckett unique is that he puts the human mind on stage, makes our most private and innermost thoughts audible. He writes about the voices in our heads and the stories we tell ourselves. This is an extract from Beckett's prose piece, Text for Nothing For... There's my life. Why not? It is one, if you like, if you must. I don't say no this evening. There has to be one, it seems. 
once there is speech. No need of a story. A story is not compulsory. Just a life. That's the mistake I made. One of the mistakes. To have wanted a story for myself, whereas life alone is enough. I'm making progress. It was time. I learn to keep my foul mouth shut before I'm done, if nothing foreseen crops up. But he, who somehow comes and goes unaided from place to place, even though nothing happens to him. True. What of him? I stay here, sitting. If I'm sitting, often I feel sitting, sometimes standing. It's one or the other, or lying down. There's another possibility. Often I feel lying down. It's one of the three, or kneeling. What counts is to be in the world. The posture is immaterial, so long as one is on earth. To breathe is all that is required. There is no obligation to ramble or receive company. You may even believe yourself dead on condition you make no bones about it. What more liberal regimen could be imagined? I don't know. I don't imagine. No point under such circumstances in saying I am somewhere else, someone else, such as I am. I have all I need to hand. Far to do what? I don't know. All I have to do. Here I am. On my own again, at last. What a relief that must be, yes. There are moments, like this moment, when I seem almost restored to the feasible. Then it goes. All goes. And I'm far again with a far story again. I wait for me, afar from my story, to begin, to end. And again, this voice cannot be mine. Beckett's solo symphonies of fractured selves are created and forged through poetry, a poetry of the page and the stage, because Beckett was a multidisciplinary artist with a wide-ranging vision, as Jim Nolson explains. I'd like to make a point about the plays and poetry. You see, Peter Hall had it, who directed Godot several times. Peter had it completely on the ball when he described Beckett as a poet of the theatre, not a poet in the theatre, like Christopher Fry or T.S. Eliot. He was an amazing... The rhythms of Godot are all kind of partly music hall, but there is poetry there. But it's also that he sees things as a poet. I mean, imagine the late plays with their images. It's like a Rembrandt. And there you have a poetic creation of an image of someone who is coming out of the darkness. So you've got a combination of a poet, a musician, but also the painter's eye. He never painted himself, but he had so many painter friends that he could see things visually in a very striking way. A poet in the widest sense, Beckett won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1969. And although he's remembered best for his plays, such as Waiting for Godot, Endgame, Happy Days, and his novels, including Malloy, Malone Dies, and The Unnameable, 
What's often forgotten is that Beckett also wrote poetry and that much of his poetic output explored the themes and preoccupations that feature in his wider body of work. Poetry played a huge role in Beckett's life and it's something that Jim Nolson picks up now. I want to explain to you how the young Samuel Beckett was inspired to start writing poetry at all. After reading Keats at his school, Portora Royal in Enniskillen, Beckett went on to study for a degree in French and Italian at Trinity College Dublin from 1923 to 27. And there, the floodgates of French, Italian and English poetry opened wide for him, not just as texts on the page either, but as words and images that he might capture and set down himself. Beckett had an amazing verbal and visual memory, and poetry worked on him partly through osmosis. On several occasions when I was with him, he would sit back in his chair, lower his head, and recite entire stanzas of poems by James Joyce or W.B. Yeats or in French Paul Verlaine or even José Maria de Heredia. Poetry then, in both English and French, was for the young Beckett not just to be found in books, but was a living current activity practised by so many of his friends and by friends of friends. But a man who poetically exercised perhaps the deepest influence on Beckett was his professor, Thomas Brown Rodmose Brown. Ruddy, as he was widely known. He was one of Trinity College's most flamboyant, least conformist, most controversial of professors. Ruddy opened all kinds of doors for me, Beckett said to Lawrence Harvey. Nonetheless, it wasn't the modern poets that Beckett spoke about as his prime loves at Trinity. These were Dante, Racine, Leopardi and Baudelaire. Dante became a focal point of Beckett's devotion and he constantly echoes the Divina Commedia in his poems, his plays and his prose. Then T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound and James Joyce burst into his life. Joyce nearly causing a tsunami. But that's another story. To understand Beckett's work isn't just to know about the books he read, but to see his work infused with his own lived experience, from his early Irish Protestant upbringing, to living through two world wars, to his love of sports, of cricket and rugby. The books he had read, the paintings he had seen, as well as the people, his analysis, his psychotherapy with Wilfred Bion, all of these things come together and really are there in his work. I mean, even a play like Waiting for Godot, you can't really understand until you realise that this came out, was written in 1948, just a few years after the war, when he'd had to escape from the Gestapo, when he had been on the road, when this puts a new light on eating carrots and radishes and and sleeping on the hay, 
That would be great, says one of the tramps to the other. And that's what they did when they were escaping from Paris down to Roussillon in the Vaucluse. So there are all sorts of things which feed in to the plays, into the novels and into the poetry so that places in Dublin, in London, in Paris that he knew are all there and are all lived experiences. Beckett takes that experience and makes it universal. In his work, figures are often located in places far removed from a recognisable sense of time or place. In the tragicomic Waiting for Godot, Beckett puts his characters in a bare landscape where the tramps wait in the nothingness for the never-to-appear Godot. In another play, Happy Days, a woman is buried up to her waist and by the second half her neck, trapped in a stark no-man's land. In dislocated and barren lands, they search for meaning, for connection, for love. This is a poem called Dieppe, read by Lisa Dwan. Again, the last ebb, the dead shingle, the turning, then the steps towards the lighted town. My way is in the sand flowing between the shingle and the dune. The summer rain rains on my life, on me, my life, harrying, fleeing, to its beginning, to its end. My peace is there, in the receding mist, when I may cease from threading these long shifting thresholds and live the space of a door that opens and shuts. What would I do without this world, faceless, incurious, where to be lasts but an instant, where every instant spills in the void the ignorance of having been, without this wave where in the end body and shadow together are engulfed? What would I do without this silence where the murmurs die, the paintings, the frenzies towards succour, towards love, without this sky that soars above its ballast dust. What would I do? What I did yesterday and the day before, peering out of my dead light looking for another, wandering like me, eddying far from all the living in a convulsive space, among the voices voiceless that throng my hiddenness. I would like my love to die, and the rain to be raining on the graveyard, and on me walking the streets, mourning the first and the last to love me. I think his scholarly skills possibly got in the way of his creative instinct. It's clear to me that he had an aspiration to be a great poet. It would have meant more to him, I think, than anything else. The fact that he turned into a great prose fiction writer and great influential dramatist was ancillary. And he continued to believe in his poems even when other people didn't. But being a very good scholar... He had read just about everything that mattered in more than one language, indeed in English, French and Italian. So he set himself 
impossible levels of attainment. He couldn't match Dante or Shakespeare or Racine. That was John Pilling, who is the co-editor of the collected poems of Samuel Beckett, and who points out that Beckett's poetry has received mixed critical opinion, even though the writing of poetry meant so much to him. It was as a poet that Beckett began his career in 1930s Paris, and the very last text he wrote before his death in 1989 was a poem called What is the Word, and which explored Beckett's lifelong preoccupation with the dilemma of language, its promise to express, and its failure in doing so. There was a lot of doubt, scepticism really, almost thoroughgoing scepticism as regards language what it could convey, what it could not convey. There was a disconnect, as we say nowadays, between his feelings and his verbal ability, considerable though the latter was. And I think every poem was something of a... not just a stain on the silence, as he famously said of his other work, but um, was just a struggle. It was a struggle to, um, struggle to articulate. Another area where Beckett was unique was in his linguistic minimalism, his attempt to strip everything right back. But he certainly preferred, if you were talking about the statue of David, then he would prefer the, 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 the maquette, the, original, the, the unformed piece, really. And he was very interested in process. There's a, an Irish writer who is very little known, who he was friendly with, called Lyle Donachy. And he has a quote in one of his volumes, published in 1927, which is, Down into the dark cell, or the womb. That resonated for Beckett. He was exploring that inner darkness in his prose, and I think that's when he found himself. And I shall never forget him saying, of course, James Joyce put everything in. He tried more and more, and I felt that I had to take everything out. And this is an example of that stripped-back style, this is a poem called The Downs, read by Edward Sayer. The Downs. Summer days on the Downs. Hand in hand. One loving. One loved. Back at night. The hut. No thought. Thoughtless on. Under the sun. Hand in hand. One loving. The other loved, thoughtless back, night. On till the cliff, the edge, hand in hand, gazing down, the foam. No further, the edge, the foam. No speech, speechless on, under the sun, hand in hand, till the edge. Speechless back, the hut, 
night. The bridge, winter night, wind, snow, gazing down, the flood, foaming on, black flood foaming on. No thought, gazing down, meaningless flood, foaming on, winter night, wind, snow, no meaning. Light from the banks, lamplight to light the foam, the snow faintly lit, the foam, the snow. In order for me to find my own personal story, my own address for this to really resonate, um, it's very easy for me to do so when I hear the nuns, I hear the parochial asides, I hear, you know, the scorn, the humour, the phrases that I, I understand. And some of it is actually geographically specific. Croker's Acres, which is outside Fox Rock, where Beckett grew up. So, you know, it's, it's not important for an actor to be Irish, but it does help a bit. Lisa Dwan on the Irishness inherent in Beckett's writing. And despite leaving his native island and settling abroad in France, Beckett was hugely influenced by other Irish writers and artists he met in Paris, especially James Joyce. Yet Beckett was a truly international writer too, multilingual, writing much of his work in English and French, translating his own work and significantly when it comes to poetry, that of other poets. He did indeed cross languages from French into English, and unusually, I mean, there are very few writers. Conrad is one, Nabokov is another, Eugène Ionesco with Romanian and French. Very few were able to write with equal facility. And remember, he was not naturally French. He lived in France. He then married, belatedly, a French woman. But he lived there during the war years, so he completely was integrated into French life. But since I was professor of French, I had the good fortune of speaking French with him as well, which was totally brilliant, of course. His French was utterly fluent as well as in writing and speech as well. But he still had a little Irish accent. It was quite noticeable there. And this is one of many poems translated into English by Beckett, read now by Rebecca Lee, and featuring another giant of 20th century art. Picasso Goes for a Walk by Jacques Prévert. On a perfectly round, real china plate, an apple poses, face to face with a painter of reality, trying in vain to paint the apple as it is, but it is having none. The apple has its own views, knows a trick or two. The apple, and before you can say knife, is turning on its real plate, slyly round and round, softly without stirring, 
and like a Duke of Guise, disguised as a gas lamp so as not to have his portrait taken against his wishes, the apple assumes the guise of a fair fruit in disguise. And it is then that the painter of reality begins to realize that all the appearances of the apple are against him. And it is then, like the unfortunate pauper, like the necessitous wretch of a sudden at the mercy of no matter what merciful, charitable organization, redoubtable with mercy, charity, and redoubtability, that the unfortunate painter of reality of a sudden falls a helpless prey to a thronging multitude of associations of ideas. And the apple, as it turns, evokes the apple tree, the earthly paradise, Adam, and then Eve, the espalier, the icox, the pie, Canada, the Hesperides, Normandy, the pippin, and the bloody butcher, the serpent's tooth, the innocent flower, and original sin, and the origins of art, and Switzerland with William Tell, and Isaac Newton himself, winner at the Universal Gravitation Exhibition of more than one gold medal. And the dazed painter loses sight of his model and falls asleep. It is then that Picasso, happening to pass as he happens to pass everywhere, every day, invincibly at home, sees the apple, the plate, and the sleeping painter. What an idea to paint an apple, says Picasso. And Picasso eats the apple, and the apple says thanks. And Picasso breaks the plate, and smiling goes on his way. And the painter, torn from his dreams like a tooth, finds himself all alone before his unfinished canvas. And in the midst of his broken crockery, the terrifying pips of reality. <laughs> For Becky Tatris, Lisa Dwan, that terrifying reality can't just be understood with the intellect. She explores the visceral aspects of Beckett's work, what it's like to read and perform, and how he gets under the skin and into the nerves of his audience. Truth can't be accessed from the head up or certainly not merely from the head up. And I think that this is highly visceral, poetic truth. And it speaks to us and about us. And I think in order to access that, we have to get very honest with our own emotional vocabulary. I feel that when you try and offer up a close approximate to that, or you try and get clever or tricksy or work from the head up, you're in trouble with Beckett and he has a way of hanging you out to dry. The language and what he was working towards and the sentiment he was working towards is so pared back. There's no fat on it. There's no room for moisture, for soppiness, for sentimentality. You know, Beckett has demonstrated time and time again that sentimentality is the language of gangsters. But what do audiences make of Beckett? Lisa describes rehearsing for one of Beckett's most difficult monologues, Not I, where, as part of rehearsals, her director decided to take her to Battersea Park in London. She explains what happened next. 
My director took me one day to the open space to sit in the grass so that I could develop some sensory memory connections to the text. I sat in the grass with my blindfold on, reciting the text aloud at speed. And when I'd finished, I lifted my eye mask at the end of the performance and saw that I had gathered an audience of park bench drunks. <laughs> who stood there dumbfounded, gripping their cans of cider, the substance they were using to drown that very voice. And we looked at each other eye to eye in total acknowledgement. Since then, I've performed it for my nieces, who were 7 and 12 at the time, and they totally understood it. I've performed it for people who never even heard of Beckett or have never been to the theatre. But what for audiences and performers now? How do artists like Lisa take Beckett's work forward and make him relevant for the 21st century? Does Beckett still speak to contemporary audiences and culture? And how? The theatre critic Michael Billington recently compiled a top 101 greatest plays and caused some controversy by taking Waiting for Godot off the list. Speaking on a national radio news programme, one of the reasons Billington cited was that Godot was avant-garde for its time, but in the 21st century, it just doesn't quite have that shock factor anymore. But Beckett actress Lisa Dwan disagrees. She thinks that Beckett is relevant now, here, today, more than ever, and this is why. You know, on the same radio programme, there was two Syrian refugees describing their own situation as waiting for Godot. And if they, in that unimaginable pain and dislocation and confusion and abandonment can um, find, I won't say solace, but sound, find some sort of identification. What Beckett does is he dusts off the gems in the corner. He writes about the crones, those in the cracks, those who've fallen through the social cracks. He writes about all of us, if we can admit it. And it's hard to admit it. It's hard to really sit there with our frailty. You know, we dress our lives up in fear of facing a kind of isolation and a frailty and a loneliness. I'm very grateful to Beckett that he takes us there because we all know it's there. And he takes us in a very beautiful, poetic way. And, you know, it's almost like a communion at times when you can just kind of sit among others in a theatre, in a darkened theatre, and admit, admit what's really going on. I mean, you look at Facebook... And then you read the lines of Rockabye, or Twitter, or Tinder, and that we're all looking for another at a window, another window, looking for another. That's what we're doing. You've been listening to the poetry of Samuel Beckett with Lisa Dwan, John Pilling, Jim Nolson, Rebecca Lee, Edward Sayer, and me, Alia Carson. The music was by Portishead and special thanks to Tourism Ireland for their generous support of this podcast. <laughs>